1: you're tuning in today, you turned in the right time. Today's
0: episode is an extra special one, which I know we talk about that a lot. But
1: hunker down, grab your popcorn. Sounds get like an after-school <laughs>
0: special, like on on a very special. <laughs>
1: it is. It is because today's episode that you're gonna listen to, and the reason I say grab your popcorn because it's a little bit longer than our traditional episode, but it is the live event that we held. In September, the panel discussion um, on building the bridge between mental health learning challenges and, okay, I just screwed up the name again.
0: Building the bridge between <laughs> school learning and mental health? And ch- school Three. learning challenges and mental oh, health. Oh, and mental okay, health. Ah, got it. <laughs> we could have picked a longer <laughs> which, title.
1: Which, yeah, and... and We're really excited for you guys to listen. If you didn't, have a chance to come to the event. This is your opportunity to listen in on the
0: great panel discussion we had. And um, And last week's episode, it may not have made sense, but those were the four panelists that you will now be listening to. Mm -hmm. So all doctors, all experts in their own realm, and all overlap. Yes. um, Which you kind of got a little taste of in those little vignettes that we did. And
1: in in the um, live discussion, we're talking about alternative ways that we can address some of these more challenging areas that often get left out with with school challenges, and, and that's the anxiety, depression, the mental health side to school challenges and how sometimes parents have to think out of the box. And it's kind of perfect today because today's episode is actually brought to you by Fusion Academy, who has played a big role in
0: helping us put together this panel. Yeah, and I mean... What the panel did discuss is, you know, how are current schools dealing with certain issues? You know, we need to have children to be engaged, to be happy. And Fusion Academy exists to, like, meet all those needs. They personalize even just not only the educational experience, but the the emotional, social experience in a one-to-one teaching way that unlocks the potential for a child completely and each student i think that goes to fusion has a unique story right and yeah and like you had alluded to you know are are you gifted twice exceptional ADHD, Are there, like, mild learning differences, anxiety, depression? Like, these were all things that the panels had discussed and even, like, what a flexible schedule could do for a child. Right. And, you know, if you guys need more information than what Amanda and I have already just said about Fusion, um, you know, check out um, Fusion Academy's Huntington Beach and their Mission Viejo campuses. And you just go online at fusionacademy.com. So we appreciate the, the sponsorship, and we hope you guys enjoy this episode. Yeah
1: please uh, make sure to leave some feedback in our Facebook group if you haven't joined already because I'm sure we'll want to extend this conversation we had at the panel into the group and because it is an ongoing thing us thinking of about it in in a different way thinking out of the box to try to solve some of these problems but we hope you enjoy the live panel.
2: super excited to be here this is a topic that is definitely near and dear to my heart Uh, but before we dive in let me first give our panel an opportunity to introduce themselves oh all
3: right um hi i'm sabrina shuck i'm um, an assistant professor at uc irvine in a lot of different things but primarily pediatrics so hi
4: My my name is Matthew Corey. I'm a child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist. Um, I mainly work in a a group uh, private practice model uh, that's based in uh, Newport Beach and Laguna Beach called the Mind Health Institute Newport Beach, uh, which I spend a good part of my time running. And I'm also on uh, the clinical faculty at UCLA.
5: I'm Julie Morgan, I'm at the Anxiety and Depression Center in Newport Beach, um, and we do evaluations as well as therapy and treatment we work a lot with, um, with the schools. Wonderful, welcome. Thank you
2: all for being here. Um, just by way of sort of a, 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 an extended introduction and, and maybe just a fun way to kick it off. When, when you walk into a fusion campus, one of the features that is present in all of our schools um, is a wall of photographs of all of our staff. Uh, we serve middle and high school students, so it's photos of our staff at that age in middle and high school. And there's a saying right there that says, uh, we know we were there, it's our job to remember. And so out of curiosity, what do you remember from being a student, what sort of a student you, what, what was your experience?
3: Who's going first?
4: <laughs> Dr. Shuck, I think you should. <laughs>
3: Well, that's a long story um in seventh grade your choice yeah school was tough um yeah uh i i seventh grade was awful um whenever i meet with parents and and talk about uh do parent training uh about learning differences um one of the things i say is okay raise your hand if you liked middle school anybody here Okay, see, there's always some weirdos in the group. <laughs> Those people that, you know, go on to be psychiatrists. <laughs> but, but really, it's, a, it's an awful time uh, of life for pretty much everybody. And for kids with learning disorders and, and neurodevelopmental challenges, it can be, it can be a, a really, really awful time of life. And, and I still think that one of the reasons that I chose this career... Um, was because of my own experiences as a child. Um, I was very hyper and I talked a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and um, they kept wanting to put me on medicine when I was uh, eight, and nine, and ten, and eleven. And uh, school was a, a, a difficult
2: context for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's go
4: for it. I, I don't He's know. Not answer, president, but, you know,
3: eighth <laughs> grade.
4: I, I guess what I identify with is, especially the folks I work with, is I do know what it's like to be inattentive. I, however, I was I do know what it was like to be inattentive, and I never liked school. I tell people I was always quite pretty good at school, but I never really liked it. It was very hard for me to to sit there and not mess around, not talk in class, things like that. And so I, how I see things different today, like I school wasn't very hard for me until I got to be older. And I feel like I was able to develop some compensatory strategies for being an attentive kind of at a natural pace. And I, that's one thing I, today, in today's school, how it's structured. I think so many kids, they're pressured when they're so young and they're just not going to have organizational skills to compensate or the executive functioning skills that are necessary to compensate for having a variety of learning challenges or inattention for that matter.
5: So uh, I actually did like school. <laughs> um, I tended to, I was that kid that would read like, my book within my desk and like, kind of check out the what was going on in the classroom, but for the most part, I did like school. One of the things that sticks with me is, I, and this was kind of neat throughout, I worked really hard for you if I liked you, but if you were not a teacher that I connected with, which tended to be my math instructors, um, I <laughs> did not work for you. And um, I remember having multiple conversations with my parents about that, because that was something that it was just, I didn't connect with you, so I didn't care, and. Well, I probably did care, but, you know, pretended I didn't.
2: <laughs> well, I think this is fantastic. This is, we have a nice cross-section of representation here. So thank you for sharing. I appreciate that. I think that there is a, a general sense uh, today that the the state, the landscape and the state of mental health is, is declining. Um, there's a, a, a sense that there's a rise in anxiety, a rise in depression, a rise in suicide, and, of course, we're all critically aware of school shootings at this point. Um, What is your take on that? Do you you think that mental health um, is in fact declining? Um, And and if so, what do you think are the primary drivers?
5: Go for it. This is such a big question and I think it's such a complicated issue. I do think there is a greater amount of mental health um, difficulties going on and that are coming out in our schools and in our children. I think a driving factor would be the stress that everybody is under um, in homes, in schools, and in all situations, so there's kind of this uh, examples, I would say, that aren't necessarily teaching kids how to cope, and so, and resiliency, and I feel like that could be a piece of it, Um, that there's just, there's so much always going on that kids are, are struggling more, so they're not learning those strategies and learning that they are resilient, then they're, um, we're seeing more mental health issues, is
3: I think one of the issues that we were talking about a little bit before, too, is um, I think a lot of these mental health issues that are being brought to the forefront in the press and um, we were talking about we have uh, Suicide Awareness Week now. This is something that, this is is a new phenomenon. So part of it is, you know, we have recognized mental health challenges earlier and and that's a good thing. but there is a lot, uh, a lot better awareness of our community to recognize those challenges earlier. And I, I think those challenges have always been there. Um, and I don't know that there's necessarily a huge increase in those challenges so much as what we call them mm-hmm. and how we better identify them and earlier mm-hmm. ident- or, or, or identify them earlier. But, but I, I agree, one of the, the biggest challenges I think we face um, in our own culture here in Orange County, you know, this, which is not unique to Orange County, um, it is these expectations of uh, what success is, and I call it South Orange County syndrome. You know, and, and I, I say that tongue in cheek. I've been saying that for a long time, but it it, it applies to a a lot of um, across contexts, not not just. Um, high SES areas. It, it, it applies across cultural contexts and across um, SES and, and, and economic boundaries. And, and I think the issue is our expectations are, are not wrong, it's not wrong that they're high uh, for our children, but we have expectations that aren't developmentally appropriate. And we have some children that are more prone or more vulnerable to um, to mental health challenges, and when the pressure is on and the expectations are not appropriate developmentally, uh, then those mental health uh, challenges are manifest more readily.
4: And I tend to agree with that. That this is a complex issue, and I and I think that's and I don't know if we know the answer to it. I do think that. It, it always surprises me that how few kids I meet like school. They all feel stressed by it. Very rarely do I meet a kid that likes school. Um, high school students talk to me all the time about how just brutal it is socially and academically. And I, to be honest with you, I think we impose a lot of expectations i i I talk to people a lot about orange county there are a lot of expectations and most of us adults that grew up here and stayed here or came here are okay with operating in a quite a socially competitive place we would go elsewhere if we weren't but we impose that on our kids and they're not all necessarily equipped to handle the stressors that come with that i think that's another thing that is just a huge misnomer in society is life is stressful no matter what your background is and we forget that that's the case and then we have these kind of false assumptions we make that life's stressful only if, or life's not stressful if you have this, or if you have that, and I, people come to me all the time, we're like, how could my kid be depressed, we have a nice, we live in Newport Beach, we go to great schools, we're successful, we have all these things that our society deems as important, but they, we, there's just this this misconception that being emotionally supportive of our kids and being connected with our communities and a lot of things that we know are some of the biggest protective factors in the mental health arena are important Mm -hmm. and so you know we could go we could talk about this for Mm -hmm. this entire hour and for hours following but those are just a couple thoughts
2: I think that uh, there's a lot to talk about as you say there, and I, I definitely want to return to this idea um, of the protective factors. Uh, but before we get there, I want to pull another thread. I, I, I feel like I was hearing a lot of themes about expectations, and whether or not those expectations were in line with uh, potentially what is possible. Um, and, and falling in into two different themes, there's the, kind of the social pressures, what I'm really curious about, and I'd love for you guys to comment a little bit more on, is what is the interplay with mental health when we're looking at learning expectations, academic expectations that may or may not be in line with the child's developmental stage, that may or may not be appropriate to where they're ready to
3: learn. So I'll take that one first because that's my big thing. Um, you know just because they can doesn't mean they should and uh, our expectations for younger and younger and younger children um have have drastically shifted in the last 20 30 years and and again what's developmentally possible doesn't necessarily mean that it's prudent and so You know, we were talking about common core standards earlier and that academic trickle down that we've talked about in education for years this, you know, uh, if, if, the, if my 7th graders aren't ready for 8th grade, then I've got to do a better job educating my 6th graders so that they're going to be ready for high school. And if my high schoolers aren't ready, then I probably ought to, you know, go down to the 5th grade level, cause, and maybe then, you know, really my 4th graders aren't ready to go to 5th grade, so, you know, and, and it keeps going down, down, down to where, you know, we talk about kindergarten readiness, and, you know, we used to joke, well, you know, being ready for kindergarten, what is that? what does that mean? I mean? That's the year you get ready to go to school. And uh, so I used to think that kindergarten readiness meant you were five. <laughs> and, and, and now we have you know, people that just go out, they, they, there's assessment teams that decide whether a child's ready to go to kindergarten or not. And, um, and I think that it, because a six year old is capable of algebraic thinking, According to Common Core standards, doesn't mean that we can assess them uh, consistently, and 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 that we should. Um, that's that that's not one of the. Those are not the things that um, you know. Knowing your math facts and and being able to write your name and being able to jump on one foot are not the things that predict really with any scientific v- validity um, school success, and and the resilience you know resilience executive function skills character development those things all do predict school success and and those have nothing to do with knowing your times tables
4: and you can take this concept too and we talk about it in the acad- through the academic lens but at least my perception of it just seeing what i see and doing what i do is it applies to sports it applies to what expectations we have for them and kids feeling like they have to play baseball every day in order to make a baseball team. And I I honestly feel like we've taken sports is, is one of the team sports is one of the protective factors about when it comes to a range of mental health challenges and we've kind of, I almost feel like we've taken this great protective factor that you can learn how to work as a team and you can learn how to socialize and you can have fun and you get exercise and all the good things that come with sports and we've almost turned it into a risk factor for these kids right. because we expect too much too early Right, right. in addition to the, the academic pressures
3: Yeah, my, my own daughter today said, she's in 7th grade my, and, sorry, sorry uh, my own daughter is in seventh grade, my youngest. And today she said, um, yeah, I want to go to high school A, I think, or maybe high school B. But high school A has a better uh, volleyball team for girls. And I said, well, I don't know if you're going to make that one, though. And she's like, what? I said, I've been playing volleyball for five years. Why wouldn't I make the volleyball team? I said, well, because it's like one of the best in the county. You know, you've got to be practicing every day in seventh grade. That's a shame. You know, that's a shame that, that a kid who loves a sport um, really probably won't be able to play in our, in, in our high schools.
4: It's She's not tall enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, Dr. Shuck, it reminds me. It's been, I was in my training at UCLA. My wife was working at Cedar Sinai, which is a hospital in LA, running research studies. And I remember we went to one of her supervisors, like a potluck at her house. And I was talking to the second grader who went to public school in L.A. and was a bright, nice kid. And I said to him, oh, my, uh, my wife tells me you like to play the guitar. And he said, like, yeah, I did, but I don't do that anymore. And I said, oh, what's up with that? He's a second grader, and he said, you know, school got too stressful.
3: She goes. Well, how can I do choir and volleyball and still good, good grades, Mom? I'm like, okay, you're twelve.
1: <laughs> what 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 is that?
5: Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I was thinking from a developmental standpoint. Like when I said I loved school when I was a kid. I asked, so I was a teacher and a school psychologist in a district for almost twenty years, and in a public school setting. And I walk in those classes, the kindergarten classes, where they're expected to sit for four hours and, and do paper pencil tasks. And I have often thought, I don't think I would have liked school as much. And <laughs> I probably would have had a lot of behavior problems similar to what a lot of my students were showing. And I think that those expectations and that, that level of competitiveness that starts even in kindergarten, um, is detrimental for sure, and I think too. If I think about that, in that same um, line of thought, that I wouldn't have liked school as much. I probably also would have felt more of that competition, like as these kids do, because everybody's constantly driving for you must, you must be the best. You must be the best in order to be do anything that is enjoyable. Yeah, so it sounds like there is a,
2: an agreement in the of the, the stressors and the pressures being a little bit out of step, perhaps, with uh, the developmental stages that our students are in. Um, I'm wondering what patterns maybe you're seeing um, in students, um, elementary, middle, high school, and, and what, are, what are some of the, the kind of the most common patterns that you're seeing where is having an impact on the mental health of the, the young person, um, and, and what is the, the interplay there with learning issues, any kind of learning challenges that might also
4: be going on? You know, I, uh, how I see it, I, I think any type of learning challenge is just greatly confound the picture. They make school more stressful, they make it less fun, the kids often feel like this is something I'm not good at, and they internalize all these feelings because we, I believe we, as adults, teachers, professionals, I think they hear us saying smartest equals best. I think kids hear that consistently, which I I try to dispel because I think is personally fundamentally untrue. But I think at school, kids hear "smartest equals best," and so kids who ha- may have a variety of learning styles or learning challenges often feel like, "Well, if school's hard, that means I'm not smart." So, I'd, I'd be- I
3: was going to say, and I've said it before, you know, if you go back just a hundred years in our culture. And you look at how most people went to school in 1918, or let's go back even a little bit further maybe, uh, at the turn of the century. You know, Most people went to school in a, a way very different than what the majority of our children in our, our nation, the way that we go to school now. Um, the 40 kids, 30 to 40 kids in a classroom with one teacher for six to six and a half hours a day and uh, you know if, if I always said back when my son was young you know if, if uh, he went out and milked the cows and you know collected the eggs came in I fed him breakfast and then did reading writing, and arithmetic for three hours in a row um, and then he had to go chase cows all afternoon he 'd be just fine, but you know try to put a child with um, some relative challenges into a traditional uh, the school environment in Orange county, uh, the way that we deliver school today uh, to the majority of people uh, was not a good thing and didn 't turn out so well and um, and, and, uh, and not just as a mother but as an educator and as an academic and a scientist, you know what we see over and over in school failure and the the lack of nutrition of uh, 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 matriculation to, to higher education in kids with ADHD um, is that feeling of, I'm just not as smart as. I'm just not a school person. I'm just not good at that. And, and that, helped, that, that contributes to the framing of so many of the children that get to us, and unfortunately they get to us too late, um, but they've already formed this opinion of themselves that school's not their thing, and it's never going to be their thing. Um, And and that leads to the challenges that end up in
5: your office. Exactly. (laughs) Like anxiety. (laughs) Lots of anxiety. Um, I see kids who do believe they are stupid when they're not, and they'll say that or cry about it, and they will often show a lot of um, compliance and school refusal behaviors or just conduct things that's a way to escape doing something that is so hard and that just makes them feel so badly about themselves. So I see a lot of kids who, actually even at the college level, I I, um, worked with somebody who had a learning disability that had been unidentified and ADHD, both unidentified until at the college level, and um, anxiety was off the charts and just hadn't learned how to cope with that, hadn't learned, um, didn't, and just saw herself as a, um, an incapable person. And it was really sad to, to see her. I and mean, so once understanding what was happening, that led to um, a lot of healing for her, just to understand, oh, this is what's going on. I am not incompetent or incapable. I just have a different way of learning. But it can definitely cause a lot of um, anxiety. And little kids love haters.
3: And if one in five people is experiencing a mental health challenge right now, and if one in five learners learns differently than the way we deliver school today, then that means 20% of you in here, right, uh, had some challenges going to school, maybe like me and Matt. (laughs) And, 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 you know, 20% of us are experiencing mental health challenges. And, and, and so, but, but that's not the way our education system is. We don't, we're not tailored for that 20%. Okay.
4: In addition to that, then these young people hear what they hear on TV, and they hear politicians tearing each other apart, and they see people on social media being as mean as possible to people. And if you say something wrong, People try to make you look as foolish as possible. And they feel like the job market has no future for them. And they hear about globalization and how stressful working is going to be. They just really honestly, from my perspective, have very little to look forward to as well. And I think it is this like self-fulfilling, kind of reinforcing situation. They just feel hopeless about academic success, and they take that all the way to, I'm going to be a failure in life, and just, it, it, it really is, unfortunately, all these things are interrelated to each, with each other at this incredibly complicated level, and I, 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 I fear we don't know how to turn it back, we don't know how to, to change this. Yeah, absolutely, and, and I want to
2: pull that thread in a second, too. Um, I'm curious, though, you know, one of my favorite debates to get into with colleagues is um, a little bit of this, you know, chicken or the egg. When did the first domino fall and what was it? And we've been talking uh, a lot so far about how the stressors uh, in our communities and the stressors in our schools um, seem to be driving some of these mental health challenges that are impacting our young people. What about when it happens in the other direction? How does a young person who is experiencing some kind of a mental health issue? How does that impact their school experience? What do you what do you wish more people leading schools, leading classrooms knew and understood about that process? Bon, bon.
4: <laughs> you know, I, I just wish personally wish people were more educated about mental health issues in general and were more open to reaching out to whatever source of support they were comfortable with. And, I, you know, I mean, this happens all the time as well. As you have a kid who's doing well everyone thinks is going doing well doing well in school doing well socially and maybe they hit a bump in sophomore junior year high school and depression sets in and takes over and they take a dip with respect to their whole developmental trajectory and then they come in and how do they how do you rectify that and and that's a different, there's a different answer depending on who who you're talking to and what their worldview is and what their philosophical notions about mental health are. And, and I think that's, I, I guess my view of it is, I just wish we were all a lot more literate when it comes to, to mental health issues. I, I just, I feel like the mental health literacy of our communities is so low.
3: And, 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 um... A lot of inaccurate perceptions and uh, wrong generalizations uh, are, are made by educators as well as parents and coaches and um, people think they have an understanding of uh, a mental health disorder but they, they bring their own understanding maybe um, from their own experiences. But not a real understanding. I remember kids saying, "Oh God, that kid's so ADHD," and 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 thinking, "Well, no, that that child has Down syndrome." What do you mean? That's not the same thing. But uh, you know, young children's perceptions of what mental health disorders mean are largely formed by uh, the television and and YouTube, and, and and I think that that's true for a lot of in our community and again it's about intersection of education educating teachers and administrators and professionals um, I think most anybody who goes into the education field goes into it because they want to help children and they want to help our culture and our society uh, to progress I don't think people that hate kids go be teachers not most of the time <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and certainly not school psychologists or administrators. They go there because they, they, they want to help. But they don't understand what depression means um, in adolescence. They don't, they don't understand what ADHD really is. They don't understand uh, what, what social anxiety and the inter- interface of social anxiety and autism means and looks like in the classroom. Um, and, and, and that's our fault as academics, Um, and and, and on us that we need to do a a better job training Um, and and we talked about this a lot Uh, really a multidisciplinary training of of physicians and teachers and behavioral health professionals
5: well I was just thinking kind of going back a little bit to how behaviors look in a classroom or to a teacher um and recognizing, I think people need to understand, behavior is communication. And oftentimes, that kid that is rolling on the floor and maybe screaming is not trying to make your day awful, not trying to, um, you know, upset the entire classroom. They're trying to tell you that it's too much for them, something's going on, they need something. And I think if that could be. Um, understood better from everybody in a child's life that sometimes those behaviors are from anxiety. Sometimes those behaviors are from um, a sensory issue. Sometimes those behaviors can be um, actually from depression. Sometimes only um, opposition behaviors look like depression. So I think going corresponds very well with what um, both here were saying that it is um, it just needs to be understood better. We need to educate our, our educators and everybody that's in our, um, in our kids' lives. Absolutely. I, I think one of the areas where I,
2: I have experienced this as being the most challenging to, uh, to witness the struggle of students and also as an educator to address myself um, with students is the, the interplay of uh, disciplinary practices. And how schools are responding to students, particularly students with learning disabilities or mental health issues, um, in a disciplinary way? Um, can you comment on some of the practices that you you've experienced, and, and are are you feeling like, as a whole, we are we are supporting our students towards success, or are there are there some real problematic issues in how we? Uh, address discipline in our schools
3: so I, th- I think first of all we've come a long way in the in the last ten years even even uh, you know since the 1980s there has been a lot of uh, evidence from the literature that has informed practice that has trickled down to um, being implemented in our in our public schools and our private schools, so I think a lot of people are doing a lot of really good things. Um, PBIS, the whole PBIS initiative, if it's done properly and if the, the if the folks really understand what they're doing, uh, it, it 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 can, can you be say a, a little bit. Oh, for our audience, just in case they don't know what that is. So, um, positive behavioral inter- intervention in schools, um, PBIS, uh, is um, uh, an initiative uh, that. It really tries to flip disciplinary programs on their backside and say, hey, let's, let's focus more on noticing the positive and uh, do this universally uh, in, in, across schools as a prevention program more than reacting to problem behaviors, rather than reacting to problem behaviors. In theory, it's great, and it was largely influenced by a lot of the practices that came out of the um, EMTA study and large um, uh, studies of of school-based behavioral um, interventions. But the challenge is we as a, 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 a community don't give the gold stars. You know very readily I, I always say you know the, the police officer doesn't pull me over and say hey good job go on the speed limit Dr. Shuck here's a hundred bucks <laughs> you know that, that's not the culture we live in I get pulled over when I do something wrong and I get a fine and it's punishment we are a very punishment based um, culture and and yet we are really the biggest token economy uh, you know more of a token economy we operate for rewards you know, we primarily work for money and yet we're teaching our kids um, and our natural inclination is to punish and what comes across first is to call on what's a problem in your classroom and ignore everything that's going well because it's easier to ignore what's going well and you have to deal with the salient problem, the kid rolling around on the floor that's interfering right now right here so I have to give it attention so so it's still even with what we know from research and even with the progress that we've made in our schools it's still a very punitive system where you start off at the top of the the, the clip chart you know and you go down 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 until you're in the principal's office so you're on the green color and then you're you know yellow and you're orange and then you're red and then you're in the in the principal's office and it's still a very punitive system where instead of encouraging children to start at the bottom and work their way off. And, and so that's a, that's a big challenge that really just takes, again, education in, hey, people will you know, behave more appropriately if you tell them what they're doing right as opposed to calling out what they're doing wrong.
4: And it's just a funny little aside of that. You know, and then we're incredibly critical of millennials because they grew up in an environment where Everybody we gave does. everyone trophies. And somehow that's the biggest problem. And P, like that's like a popular thought in society is they're weak because they all got trophies. And you see so many other issues that are so much more significant than the fact that your six-year-old finished the soccer season, so they get a little two-inch trophy. And I just feel like we're just, again, it's based on just being so undereducated about this. I have met with more than one school. That is, I don't often meet and go to schools, but when I say something about positive reinforcement, they're critical. It's, why are you always talking about positive reinforcement? You know, we already do that here. And you ask them, well, what does that mean? And they honestly have no idea what the concept even is. And it's, it. that's, I mean... We know positive reinforcement is the best way to change behavior when it comes to a range of issues. I often try to convince people, like, let's at least learn about it, because regardless of what we call this, it should help. And in general, most people, including my wife, often are resistant to these concepts of positive reinforcement. I'm joking when I say my, well, my wife's a therapist, but sometimes we go back and forth about this where I'm like, you know, let's try to reframe that. And not to say I'm always right, but it's just there's so much resistance to that.
3: Yeah, it's, it's, it's not in our nature to to give gold stars. and, and, and But, but the, the, the point being, behavior changes more readily in the face of being rewarded than it does, and, and that's the other thing. People always say, oh, well, how do I get rid of this behavior? Well, let's focus on getting, building up the opposite of that, and, and, and that's, that's a large part of what goes wrong with young children with ADHD, is we're, we're trying to reduce their problem behaviors while we're, and we're not focusing on teaching them adaptive skills, and we're not focusing on teaching them how to sit, and, and how to stand and adjust yourself so that, and uh, you know, we're, we're trying to punish away problem behaviors and, and in, in the absence of the vacuum, there's no replacement of the, the, the adaptive
5: behavior that we, that we want
3: to increase.
5: And, and I would agree that in the last 20 years, there has been a big shift um, as far as, and actually PBIS came to my school site when I was there And I saw huge, I saw a wonderful improvement, like it was great. Also restorative justice practices are now becoming um, a bigger thing in the schools, which is also wonderful. Um, And I I appreciate that it's it's decreasing uh, suspensions, which are, we all know, not great. And Yet, of course, we do still have people who are trying to punish kids by doing things like sending them to the office where they sit for hours and considering that punishment when the child is probably actually being reinforced. Um, (laughs) So there's definitely a long way to go in that, and I think along with kind of changing the mindset about reinforcers and rewards as opposed to punishments is looking at environment and changing the, it, kind of going back to something we talked a little bit about before, expectations and developmental readiness. And if we're not developmentally ready for something, then we need to change something um, in the, the expectations there, and perhaps that would set us up, more like an antecedent approach, set us up for, um, for a positive outcome.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that you mentioned restorative justice. I also think that that's a really... Uh, Positive move. Um, I think one of the things that um, I also have experienced this thing highly problematic is in you, know, you mentioned the suspensions. Um, anytime we're removing a student from the learning environment, there is the potential that they're being positive, they're being reinforced. Their behaviors are being reinforced because perhaps what they want is to leave the learning environment. But what we also sometimes miss in that is that it, it becomes an issue of equity at that point too. Because as soon as we remove the student from the learning environment, Um, presumably under the guise of being for the greater good of the whole that other students now can learn because the distraction has been removed that student that has been removed is no longer able to have access to the learning Um, i think it's just a a really important thing for us to continue looking at um, as we address these things so i think for parents especially um, some of the there's a there's a lot of um, fear around uh, The the use of substances, substance abuse emerging in young people, Um, depression and suicide, certainly. Um, And also in our media lately has been just, it feels like an inundation of school violence and particularly school shootings. But there's a lot of debate out there as to whether or not school violence and school shootings are in fact related to mental health or if there are other drivers of those events. And I wonder if you can comment on that. Who wants that one? (laughs) That's a really big question.
5: (laughs) Um, I think clearly there has to be something going on um, mentally for somebody to do something that um, horrific. I hesitate, I hesitate to say, um, well, I mean, clearly there is mental health issues. I hesitate to say that's why they did it, um, because I think with stigma and all of those things, I think there is a multitude of factors, some of which we've talked about today, um, and oftentimes some trauma as well going on that is all, just, and lack of coping as well. Lack of knowledge of how to handle something um, has all been uh, a part of it, as well as something Dr. Corey talked about with the um, the fact that this is kind of what our society is always showing, like we're showing violence, we're showing get the last word in, get the last action in, be the one that does the zinger. Um, and so, yeah, I think I think it's a it's a pretty big complicated issue.
3: You know, one of the things that I talk with when you know, um, I don't know if anybody knows this, but you know, I I, I direct a, a, a school based treatment intervention program for kids with challenges, neurodevelopmental disorders primarily. And most of our older kids have an autism diagnosis. And um, and they're and, and they all have very high intellect as well. Um, and they're most of them very anxious. And whenever we have a school shooting, because it happens unfortunately at least once a year, um, it is a big, big concern of uh, and, and of all the parents of these kids, because almost always mental health gets brought into the conversation on the news. And almost always it has the child has a profile similar to the profile of the kids that are some of the kids that are. Uh, participating in our program and and the conversation I try to have with the parents is be informed know what the signs are understand what a safe home is understand what uh, you know what the, the the earlier warning signs are um, you know this is not going to happen to your child we're on it you're you're okay uh, And and just because this child did this doesn't mean that all children with these challenges are going to go on to be school shooters or mass murderers. Um, Yes, they're more vulnerable to fall into that category. So be aware and be educated about it. Be prepared. Don't, you know, have the blinders on that, hey, this isn't going to happen to me. Say, these are the reasons this isn't going to happen to me. Because I've done this, this, and this, and I've kept taken this step and this step and this step to prevent that from happening. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I think that that empowers parents somewhat, and, you know, um, and we can only do what we can do.
4: And I think our hesitation to answer that is, we don't know. Yeah. And complex problems do not have simple solutions. And so to say it's because of this or because of that is just really looking at the problem way too simplistically. And I I think we have to assume that some of the, maybe what we'll call markers in society, the suicide rates going up, it seems like school shootings are more prevalent. I do think those are likely markers of like the mental health of our communities is not... Going in a good direction, and that we need to figure out how to appropriately intervene to change that. I, I, I do not like when I hear on the news after one of those where they just blame it on mental illness, because I think that is way too simplistic. Of uh, it's just it again is taking an incredibly complex problem and try to answer it with a simple solution, and so. I, and, and honestly I do think that the, the, the reality of it is is we don't know mm-hmm. um, and and those proximal risk factors and things that happen way back and there's all kinds of factors that play into this that we have some general concepts of what are protective factors and what are risk factors but that does not mean those are the, those apply to individual situations.
0: Well,
2: as we, as we round the corner towards home, I want to uh, hopefully create some hope. I think um, in my, in one of the things that I think about a lot is that uh, one of the antidotes to uh, anxiety and stress and pressure is the um, emergence of hope. So with that in mind, you have talked a lot about some of the um, negative pressures that are, and and, um, some of the negative elements of our culture that seem to be promoting some of these problems, discord um, in our communities, lack of connection. Um, And I wonder what your thoughts are on some of the solutions. Um, There are lots of solutions that are out there in uh, schools we've talked about a couple um, potential solutions and uh, also out in just in popular culture the, the rise of awareness around concepts of um, uh, positive psychology uh, Angela Duck, Duckworth's work on grit and resilience um, and uh, mindfulness uh, now seems to be uh, popping up almost everywhere and becoming much more mainstream um, and of course all of these things also have criticisms I'm curious, what are what are some of the uh, some of your favorite solutions if you if you were in charge and could ma- wave that magic wand? What are what are the things what are the solutions that you would bring to schools and communities to address these issues? I'll come first. Um,
3: so I think there's so many things. I mean it, it, that's the awesome part about this is uh, the research tells us that we have all kinds of options. Uh, We're just not using them. And uh, mindfulness-based training is very promising. Uh, Adele Diamond at the University of British Columbia has has been writing about this for years, um, about mindfulness practices in schools, building resilience, building executive functions uh, through these kinds of practices through uh, in, increased physical activity, uh, physical activity combined with um, uh, uh, mindfulness activities like yoga, taekwondo. You know, the, 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 the evidence is emerging, uh, you know, and, and really very supportive of things that everybody can do. Um, uh, Dr. Kay and Swanson just wrote a, a, a paper, just came out a couple of months ago, uh, of the overview of effective treatments twenty years twenty five years later after the MTA study for kids with ADHD, you know one of the things that we know is that behavioral parent training, which is just education educating parents, is still one of the most uh, effective ways for reducing problems in schools and yet we don 't not, not i don 't know very many schools that have behavioral parent training as an opportunity, and uh, and just just psychoeducation for parents in general um, is is easy, cheap, and and uh, even if it doesn't help the kid, the parents always say their marriage is better afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I, I think that's important too. I think uh, for the, the the health of the family unit and of siblings of affected children. And uh, for marital relationships uh, and extended family relationships, developing an education around these mental health issues is probably one of the most protective things we can do for everybody that's touched by them.
4: This is going to sound... This is not supposed to sound like a political statement, so I'm a little hesitant, but honestly, regardless of our political affiliations, I truly believe we have to get our heads around the fact that good education, good health care, and job opportunities benefit all of us, even if our kids don't go to public schools. Having a good public school system benefits us all. Having a variety of educational options for people. And I think that politically, we just need to get our heads around the fact, factory. It's almost the, it's kind of the public health lens that investing in this is investing in the future of our children. And it is so, I, it is so disconcerting to me that just that we can't get our heads around those simple ideas, but I would almost guarantee if we did a really meaningful assessment that most of us would agree with that, regardless if we're a Democrat or Republican or Libertarian or Independent, that we need to really change the way we look at these things, because it really is what is going to make our children healthier and stronger and having more opportunities and more hopeful.
5: And I think that for me, hopefulness is coming in kind of because of conversations like this. I think at um, the national level, there are a lot more discussions happening like with the National Association of School Psychologists. I know they're doing a lot of advocacy for getting more mental health in the schools and trying to get that funding. Um so I feel like there's hope that these conversations are happening and hopefully funding and support will follow. Um that would be ideal. And I do think, you know, the changes with PBIS and restorative justice and a lot of these other things are leading towards um a brighter future in that in that sense. And then I would also just add I think maybe more of an individual level, but when there are kids who are really struggling, that there would be more of a ability to communicate. So between whatever whatever organizations are um, supporting that child, between their mental health, if it's community mental health, or um, government funded, or the uh, court systems even, and the school districts, and, foster care and all of those, those different systems that these kids are um, part of, if everybody could communicate instead of keeping everything separate, I think that would actually be a huge solution um, towards change. All right, one
2: final question on that. You could add one course to the curriculum, whether it be for students, for teachers, educators, or for parents, What would the title of that course be? To start to shift our awareness.
4: How to be nice to other people.
2: (laughs) 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 Who's the class class for? Your choice, is it for students, for parents, or for teachers? We're all (laughs) three. Or any combination thereof. Hmm. <coughs> yeah.
5: I, I, how to get along. <laughs> Communication 101. I don't, uh, I, I don't have a title, but I would agree. It's, it's the kindness factor and coping strategies. Learning how to actually cope and be resilient. So I'm going to train that in. Yeah, it's about compassion, too. I think.
3: One of the things that most parents of kids with mental health challenges face is exclusion and, and feeling humiliated. Um, a lot of parents that come to us are, are, are really experiencing a form of PTSD. You know, they, they, every time they go to the school, they feel sick um, because they, every time they drive away from the school, they feel like, when am I gonna get that call? When's it coming? Oh God, it's 10 o'clock and I still haven't heard them from them yet. Of oh, what you know, so so I think compassion, uh, teaching our whole community compassion rather than judgment, would be something that would
2: really help. Well, thank you all for being here this evening. It's been a thrill for me, and hopefully uh, meaningful for all of you. Thank you. Thank you.